the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read into chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Here's what God says to us through the Apostle Paul. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. How can we know that we are truly Christians? How can we know that we belong to Christ? How can we have confidence in our hearts that God is our Father and we are His children? How can we be sure that on the last day we will be welcomed by Christ into paradise? Well, obviously we must have faith. Salvation is by faith alone. But how can we know that our faith is real? How can we know that the faith we have is 
the genuine, God-given, saving kind of faith? Well, the answer that the Bible gives is that genuine, God-given, saving faith works through love. Faith shows itself in love. The greatest evidence, the greatest evidence of genuine faith is love. Now we are to love all people. The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that we are to consider all people our neighbors no matter how different they are from us. We are to be kind to all people. We are to have a true concern for all whom God brings into our lives. Our God causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He causes His rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. And in the same way, we who are Christians, we should love all people, even those who despise us, even those who treat us badly. The great emphasis of the New Testament, however, is on Christians showing their love towards one another. Many, many times, we are told that the telltale sign of our salvation is this. Do we have love for the people of Christ? In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says this, By this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A disciple follows in the footsteps of his master. And our master is a man of love, the Son of God who gave himself up for us. And since Jesus is marked by this great love, His disciples will reflect that same love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you do not love your brother or sister in Christ, you have no grounds for confidence that you are Christ. God is love. Those who belong to Him love. Like Father, like Son. If you are a child of God, you will imitate your Father's love. 1 John 4, 7 Beloved, that is, those who are loved. Beloved, Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you have genuine love in your heart for the people of God, you have a good grounds for confidence about your salvation. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So church, I would suggest that this is the test 
that proves more than any other whether or not we truly know God. And if this is the test that helps us understand this, that helps us discern the truth about our salvation, should we not be incredibly energized to make sure that we are full of love for God's people? If this is the telltale sign of a Christian, should we not be passionately praying for God to give us boundless evidences of love for His people in our lives? Should it not be the grand pursuit of our lives to glorify God by loving His people? Love is not some small, unimportant thing. There's faith, there's hope, there's love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. If you have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all the knowledge in the world, perfect faith, enough to move mountains, but you do not have love, Paul says you are nothing. It's how essential love is. It's everything. What a terrible tragedy it would be for us to be a church that cared a lot about knowledge, a church that cared a lot about faith, to be a church that cared a lot about external obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to be a church that cared a little about love. It does not matter how far we excel in being outwardly obedient to Jesus. If we do not have love, we do not know Him, and all of our other evidences are in vain. This is the ultimate test. Do we have love for one another? What did Jesus say would be the test by which He would judge all people on the last day? Was it not the test of love for His people? I know you've heard this passage many times, but I want you to pretend you've never heard it before and let it kind of fall fresh upon you. What Jesus is going to use as the standard of judgment on the last day, at least in part, is how you treated the people of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, Jesus says, and all the angels with Him, Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats He will place on His left. So so the whole world is going to be separated. Some in the world are going to be sheep. And some in the world are going to be goats. But what is the great difference between the two? What makes a sheep a sheep and what makes a goat a goat? Well, listen. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are those who have fed Christ. 
Those who are sheep are those who have, have given Christ something to drink. They are those who have welcomed Christ, clothed Christ, visited Christ in His sickness, visited Christ in His imprisonment. Have you done those things? The righteous will answer Him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these my brothers, you did it to me. Church, faith works through love. If you trust Christ, and you will love Christ. And if you love Christ, you will love His people. And you will love all His people, even those in other nations, even those of other races. You will be concerned about Christians. You will be concerned about Christians in other churches and in other contexts. And you will have a special love for those Christians that you actually get to know and spend time with and live life with in your own local church. How are you doing in this area? Is real love showing itself in your life? Is real love showing itself in you for the other people in this room? I've heard Gary Hendricks say that the difficulty isn't loving Christians. The difficulty is loving these Christians. It's loving the ones that are here in front of us. It's easy to say we love Christians in general. It gets tough when we start getting specific. Are we loving one another, warts and all? Listen to John Owen. Let none then pretend that they love the brethren in general and love the people of God and love the saints while their love is not fervently exercised towards those who are in the same church society with them. Christ hath given it to you for a trial He will try your love at the last day by your deportment to that church wherein you are. Last week we saw in our passage here in 1 Thessalonians that true love longs for fellowship. If we truly love one another, we will delight in spending time together. If we claim to love our fellow church members but have no desire to to want to get to know them better, no desire to be involved in their lives, well, our love then is something very short of the love of God. Well, Tonight, we have two more points to make about Christian love from this passage. The second one is this. True love longs for the welfare of others. True love longs for the welfare of others. Of others. There's two aspects to this. If we love someone, we will be concerned about their temporal welfare. We will be concerned about their health. We will be concerned about their comfort. We will be concerned if they do not have food to eat or clothes to wear. Are there practical needs in our church family that need to be met? Real love cares about those things. The other aspect 
And it is more important, but I don't want to diminish the importance of the other. But the other aspect is that we will also care for the spiritual welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. True love longs for the spiritual welfare of others. This is very clearly taught in our passage. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they were run out of town. They had to leave these new babes in Christ alone in the city of Thessalonica. Yet Paul's love for these people would not allow him to remain unconcerned about how they were doing spiritually. Timothy was sent by Paul to the Thessalonian Christians in order to find out how they were doing and to establish them, to exhort them. Paul was fearful that they might not be doing well. And when Timothy brought back the good report about their healthy spiritual condition, it set his feet to dancing. True love has its priorities straight. It understands that as important as physical health is, spiritual health is even more important. And as crucial as being financially stable is, being spiritually stable is even more crucial. And so when Paul prays for the Thessalonians, there's no word here about their health, despite the fact that they were under constant physical persecution. And there's no word here about them flourishing materially or growing in riches. Not that it would be wrong for Paul to pray about those things. But Paul's prayer in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 is all about one thing, their spiritual condition. He is praying that they will be a people abounding in love. That they will have hearts established in holiness, pure hearts, so that when Jesus comes back, they will be ready and not lost. Their salvation, as evidenced in the holiness of their lives, that is Paul's primary concern. And dear friends, mark this carefully. A person's salvation, as evidenced by holiness in their lives, will always be love's chief concern. God loves us, and this love is shown in that His Spirit has been given to us, giving us faith, saving our souls, making us holy. Without this holiness, we would not be able to go to heaven. But God is graciously granting it, forming it within us, purchased by the blood of Christ in whom we are counted righteous. God loves us in that He is concerned for our souls. And this is the supreme mark of love. Parents, do we love our children? Grandparents, do we love our grandchildren? Do we define love God's way? Does your love show itself in a genuine concern for the spiritual state of your family members? Do you urge them to hold fast to Christ? To trust and obey Christ? To serve Him with all their might? If we love one another... This ought to characterize our prayers for one another. When I pray for you as a church family, I do not typically pray mainly for physical health or 
material needs. Not that it's wrong to pray for those things. But I do not even pray mainly for your comfort in this life. I pray mainly that God would cause you to be more and more like Jesus. That God would give more evidence of of the genuineness of your salvation so that when our Lord Jesus comes back or when you die, whichever is first, you will be ready. My prayer for you and our prayer for one another should be that on the day when each of us stands before Jesus, we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Love is concerned about that. Samuel Rutherford once told his congregation that their going to heaven would be like two heavens for him. That their salvation would be like two salvations for him. That's how we ought to love one another. Even as we are pursuing our own faith and following Christ and rejoicing in our own salvation, we also have a deep concern for the salvation of one another. Paul's heart was so tied to this church that in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Is that the way we feel for one another as a church family? Is it true of us that when we see one who is growing, doing well, holding on to Christ in tough times, being a strong witness in the face of trials. Does it fill our hearts? Does it fill us with thanksgiving and with joy? God forbid, does it matter little to us? Conversely, when we see a brother or sister in Christ who seems to be falling away, coming to church less and less, or becoming in some becoming entangled in some sin of the heart, do our hearts break? Does it bother us? Do we hurt on the inside and pray for them and go to them and plead with them to repent? When we see someone, a brother or sister in Christ, beginning to to fall away, is it for us like watching a brother or sister about to take the last step off of the roof of a high-rise building to commit suicide? Are we willing to plead through tears, turn back? We love you too much, don't do this. The example of love that we see in this passage and throughout the Scriptures teaches us that if we love one another, it will show itself in a genuine concern for the spiritual state of one another. Now, our concern for each other's spiritual state should not diminish, but heighten our concern for each other's temporal state. You cannot claim to love someone's soul if you do not care at all about their practical needs. 1 John 3, 17-18 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and in truth. One of the great truths about love is that when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that love will keep us from a great number of sins. For example, one of the ways that we love one another in a local church is that we protect one another's reputation. Love believes all things, meaning that love considers others better than ourselves and will not accept any charge against another believer except unless there is ample evidence to prove it. This is why the Bible says that a charge must, against another believer must come from two or more witnesses. You see, we understand that a Christian's reputation reflects on the whole body of Christ and on Christ Himself. And therefore, we as Christians refuse to speak ill of each other flippantly. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will become more careful with what we say about our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will refuse to listen to to gossip about our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we love our brothers and sisters, we will refuse to allow ourselves to despise them when they don't agree with us on this or that opinion. In other words, Love for one another will protect us from many sins. Actually, love will keep us from all sins. If we could love perfectly, we would not sin. All of the law of God can be summed up in these commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. If you love God and love your neighbor, you fulfill the whole law. You do not sin. What are the Ten Commandments? But simply an explanation of these two greatest commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What will that look like? What does loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength look like? Well, it looks like having no other gods before Him. It looks like having God first in your life. It means not making images of Him, not diminishing Him, or acting as if He is somehow less glorious than He is. It means not using His name in vain, but having Him in reverence in your heart. It means not dishonoring His day, but taking the worship of God and the rest that He gives us seriously. And if you love God, these things become easy. If you love God, these things become delight, not duties. Love makes the fulfilling of the law of God a joyful, easy experience. This is why Christ could say, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not that Jesus' standards are somehow now lower than they were in the Old Testament. It's not as if Jesus says, now that I'm here in the new covenant, I'm going to make my standards lower. They're actually higher. But what makes his yoke easy and his burden light is there's a change in heart so that we now love the God whom we seek to serve. And suddenly law keeping becomes loving. Brian Thompson. What about the command to love your neighbor? Just teasing you, Brian. What about the command to love your neighbor? What does it look like? 
Does it not look like honoring your parents and all who are in authority over you? Love is concerned about the life of others, so we do not murder, but we protect life and hold life in sanctity. Love is concerned about the purity of others. Love is concerned about the material possessions of others. Love is concerned about truth and that others are treated with justice and fairness and honesty. Love is concerned about protecting people from the strife that covetousness and envy produces. In other words, the first table of the law, the first four commandments, are all about how we love God. The second table of the law, the the last six commandments, are all about how we love others. And love compels us to keep the commandments. You can't imagine being dishonest towards the person if you truly love them. We couldn't imagine allowing their life to be in danger due to lack of food or lack of shelter if we love them. Listen to Paul bring this together. Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. He says, The commandments, You shall not commit adultery, You shall not murder, You shall not steal, You shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So what is the key to holiness? What is the key to defeating sin and living unto God? It's love. It's being concerned about the welfare of others. And so I would ask you, are you concerned with the welfare of others? Or is your own welfare the chief desire of your heart? Test yourself. Let us repent of lovelessness and pray for God to cause love to abound in us. Let us work to that end. The third truth that we see about the nature of Christian love in this passage is that true love longs to be a blessing. True love longs to be a blessing. It doesn't just, it doesn't just have concern for the welfare of someone from a distance. Love has concern about the welfare of someone and then says, now what can I do to help that person be better off? What can I do to be a part of God meeting that person's needs? We see in these verses that Paul not only cared about the spiritual welfare of these dear Christians, but he longed to contribute to their spiritual welfare. He longed to be a blessing to them himself. He says he tried again and again to come to them. He sent Timothy to establish and exhort them. He says in verse 10, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. There are still things that you need to know. Still things that you need to be taught, Thessalonian Christians. I'm still praying for God to bring me to you so I can teach you. Paul and Silas and Timothy longed to be used by the Spirit of God to strengthen these Christians. They longed that their spiritual gifts would be used for the spiritual health of this body. This is very similar to the way Paul talks in the beginning of the book of Romans. 
Except there he points out that not only does he want to go to the church in Rome in order that God, through his spiritual gifts, might strengthen them, but he also acknowledges, oh, and I will be strengthened by you. God will use you to strengthen me, even as God is using me to strengthen you. This is what love does. When Christians come together in true love, often they are building each other up at the same time. I'm being encouraged and strengthened by your gifts as you are being encouraged and strengthened by mine. And all of this is the work of the Spirit making the church holy through the individual members. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands being used for one another's good. True, heartfelt love is what motivates it all. I don't care how good the parts of an engine are, Without the fuel, the engine won't run. So also, we may have a church full of people with many different spiritual gifts and many different ways of blessing one another, but if true love isn't here, it won't happen. We must be motivated by a care for the spiritual welfare of one another and a longing to be useful in the spiritual welfare of one another. Consider the question that Paul asks in verse 19 of chapter 2. What is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? What is our hope? That word hope, we've talked about it, means an eager expectation. The crown is that laurel wreath presented to the victor at the end of his race, which he would then lay before the feet of his God as a sign of homage. Paul is asking, what is it that he's going to present to the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of worship when Christ returns? When my Savior comes back and takes me to Himself, what will I have to give to my Savior? What will He have accomplished through me that I can then present to Him on the last day? And Paul's answer is this, is it not you? You are our glory. You are our joy. Paul's great mission in life was to glorify God by making disciples whom he could present to the Lord Jesus on the last day. It would be his joy to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, look at what your Spirit has accomplished. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. This is your trophy. Thank you for what your grace has done in me. I am a trophy of your grace. And through me, you have, your, you have worked your great salvation for all these as well. You see, Paul's boasting and Paul's joy on the last day would not be self-centered. It would be radically Christ-centered. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew who Christ had made him. And he was thrilled at the prospect of what Christ was doing in him. He eagerly waited for the day when he could take all the crowns of victory he had received and place them at the feet of Christ, at the feet of the one to whom they belonged. So Paul's love for the Thessalonian Christians was intimately connected to his love for Christ. He loved his Lord by loving others. He loved God by loving those created in God's image. And Paul sought to bless the Lord by being a blessing to God's people. Paul blessed the Lord by bringing the Gospel to others. 
by nurturing them, educating them, praying for them, ministering to them, pointing their attention and their affections and their worship towards Him. And that is what true love does. This is what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love God by investing your thoughts and your emotions and your body and all you are into communing with God through prayer and Bible study and then serving Him by serving other people. Do you have a desire to be a blessing in the lives of those around you? Do you have a, bless, do you have a desire to honor the Lord by caring for the people whom He cares for. Christ was willing to die for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ has a boundless love for your brothers and sisters in Christ as He poured that love into your heart. Do you share His love for your fellow believer? Is it your eager expectation that when the Lord Jesus comes back, you will be able to point at your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, see, Lord Jesus, look at what your grace has done in me. See how they are prepared for you. See how my brothers and sisters love you. See how my brothers and sisters worship you. By your grace, Jesus, I got to have a part in that. I got to, uh, to have a part in helping them get here. These brothers and sisters, they are my victories because I helped them run their race. And now I take my victory crowns and I cast them at your feet and I say that it was all for you. It was all for you, my Savior, my King, and my Lord. So church, we ought to bless one another. Bless and do not curse, for to this you have been called. We ought to bless one another through intercessory prayer. We ought to bless one another by confessing our struggles to one another. We ought to bless one another by offering both words of encouragement and, when needed, words of admonishment. We ought to bless one another by our attendance in these services and by singing boldly words of truth into one another's ears and by our examples of godliness around one another. We ought to bless one another in creative and imaginative ways. We ought to outdo one another in showing honor. We ought to love one another. And in this way, we will love the Lord Jesus Christ who bought us with His blood. Jesus, make it so. Amen. Let's pray.